That is a great new song. And once in a while, people ask me, do you get nervous speaking in front of so many people? And I can say that after years of uh, doing so, I don't really get nervous speaking in front of people, but I do get nervous handling God's Word. And I mean that very, uh, mean, mean that very seriously. And now I'm even more nervous after that, um, after that song. Let's pray. Father, my great um, desire is to handle your word rightly, well, and to show all of us Christ. And so, receive glory um, from the preaching of your word, in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you could be anyone in the world, who would you be? Most of us have admired somebody with whom we wish that we could trade places, or, or at least we wish we could be like. If you could be like anyone, who would it be? If you're old enough, you remember the Be Like Mike Gatorade commercial that first aired in 1992. During the beginning of Michael Jordan's stellar career, Gatorade came out with a cute commercial, Everyone Wants to Be Like Mike. It actually started with someone singing these words, Sometimes I dream that he is me. Got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move, I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike. It actually ends with a full screen print be like Mike, drink Gatorade. I would play the commercial for you, it's available on YouTube, but then I would lose some of you for the rest of the morning. <laughs> it was catchy. It was actually brilliant marketing, because what kid didn't want to be like Mike? Even today, almost 25 years later, Nike releases retro Air Jordan basketball shoes at over $200 a pop, and people get in riots fighting over them. Because everyone knows you have to drink Gatorade and wear Air Jordans to be like Mike. Who do you dream about that he is me, or you are him, or her? If you could be like anyone in the world, who would it be? Someone with lots of money. You know, those three people from Maryland, Illinois, and Kansas who had the winning lottery tickets from Mega Millions and are about to split $640 million. Who would you be? Someone with lots of looks. The advertising industry capitalizes on girls wanting to be like supermodels or movie stars. Never mind that said stars spend hours in the gym, they're anorexic, and they spend thousands on makeup and hair, and their images are airbrushed. Who would you like to be like? Someone with lots of popularity. 
lots of athletic ability, lots of followers, lots of influence, lots of power. I know we want to be someone that everyone else wants to be. Don't misunderstand me. I am not knocking Mike. I I agree with the National Basketball Association, the NBA website, which says, and I quote, by acclamation, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. Can you imagine the honor afforded him when everyone was singing, I want to be like Mike? I want to suggest that who we want to be most like reveals a little about our hearts. It reveals perhaps what we value most. And Paul calls us this morning in our study of Ephesians to imitate, to be like someone. And I want you to know that he sets the bar pretty high, a little higher than a 10-foot basketball goal. Read the text with me, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators, mimites, mimic, be like God as beloved children. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now that is someone to aspire to, to be like. Paul is continuing to describe what a worthy walk of Christ followers looks like. He's now used the word walk three times to describe our lifestyle. First time was in chapter 4, verse 1. When he transitioned, remember, from doctrine to duty, therefore, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That verse serves as an introduction to the rest of the book where he describes that worthy walk. Then in verse 17 of the same chapter, he says, so this I say, I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as Gentiles walk. So he calls us to a worthy walk. He calls us to a holy, to a different walk. Now we get to the beginning of chapter 5, and he says, again, third time, walk. This time in love. Now, eventually we're going to go on and read the rest of the text this morning. And it's going to seem a little disjointed because he's going to jump from imitating God by walking in love and he's going to take a seemingly right turn to talk about sexual immorality and obscene or filthy talk. It's so odd, this disparity, that some suggest verses 1 and 2 actually go at the end of chapter Four, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, be imitators of God, as beloved children walk in love. And that is actually a very good connection. But there is 
there is actually a very good connection with the verses that follow. See, I want to suggest that Paul is drawing a very stark contrast. To imitate God is to walk in self-sacrificing love, demonstrated by the love of Christ in giving Himself for us. Conversely, contrast, self-centered love, selfish love seeks whatever it wants for self-gratification to include sexual immorality, impurity, greed, covetousness, obscenity. So I want you to listen this morning. You may be sitting here and say, I know I'm not supposed to be involved in sexual immorality. I, I know I'm not supposed to sit down in front of the computer and those porn sites. I know I'm not supposed to sleep with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. I know I'm not supposed to be involved in this affair. The problem is you love yourself more than you love God. This is the contrast. And so, with that in mind, let's spend some time in the text, this outline, imitate followers of Christ, imitate the love of God, do not imitate the love of self. That's where you'll end up. And, and if you do, there's a warning for self-loving people. Therefore, he says, be imitators, mimites of God. That is a bit challenging. Be like Mike would be easier, it seems to me. Be like God. In other places, Paul tells us to, Im he says, imitate me as I follow Christ. In other places, he says, imitate church, imitate this church. Yes, there are other verses that tell us to follow Christ, which implies imitation, but this is the only place in the Bible that says it explicitly, imitate or be like God. In what way? Am I supposed to be omnipresent? Omniscient, omnipotent. N no, God has attributes or qualities or characteristics that He alone possesses, and we don't try to mimic them at all. But there are other qualities that, we, that He has that we are to pursue. For example, Peter quotes the Old Testament, actually quotes God, when God says, be holy as I'm holy. There's, there's a high bar for you. Chapter, Paul said in chapter 4, verse 24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created, this new self has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So yes, we are to imitate God in righteousness, holiness, and truth. That's what Paul has been talking about. But here, he changes the focus a bit, and he says, be imitators of God, beloved children, and walk in love. <coughs> this is how we are to imitate God. Walk or conduct yourself in love. Love 
is to be characteristic of Christians. As we are like God, we are to be loving people. But what kind of love? When Paul says, imitate God as beloved children, he means since you are loved by God and have become his children, then I want you to imitate your, your father. He loved you. You're now the beloved. Now become loving people, just like, just like dad. What kind of love? Well, the word for love is that word we, we know well. It's that word agape, which speaks of the most intense form of love, this self-sacrificing love. It's a love that seeks the best and the benefit of the one loved. And Paul goes on to describe how God demonstrated that self-sacrificing love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. We see the supreme example of self-sacrificial love is Christ when he gave himself up. How appropriate this morning that we are at this text. Not only the first Sunday of the month, when we remember Christ giving himself up for us in the Lord's Supper, we're going to do that later, but also Palm Sunday, when we remember that Jesus entered Jerusalem, which began his Passion Week. And the week culminates in the resurrection of Christ next Sunday. We call that Easter, but I want you to remember that it goes through the very dark valley of the crucifixion on Good Friday. You've heard me say this before. One of the problems is, as we go from high point to high point, uh, triumphal, so-called triumphal entry to resurrection, and we leave out the valley in between. That's why I want to encourage you to be here on Friday night to remember that he gave himself up for us. Notice several things about the dem this de demonstration of divine love. It's the first time in the book of Ephesians that Paul specifically says that Christ loves us. He said God loves us. Now he says Christ loves us. Second, notice he gave himself up for us. The words gave himself up are in the reflexive. It's called the redundant reflexive for emphasis. It means that he took the initiative in handing himself over for death. Christ is the one who gave up his own life. No one took it from him. Um, Jesus makes this point abundantly clear in John's gospel. John chapter 10, Jesus. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A little later in that chapter. For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I'm doing this. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. John 15, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. I'm laying it down. John 19, at the point of crucifixion, and Pilate entered into the praetorium, Again, and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have 
<coughs> the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you. And Jesus said, don't you know who I am? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. You are not in charge here, Pilate. I am. I'm now laying down my life. It's clear throughout the Gospels that Jesus voluntarily, in submission to the Father's will, laid down his life. There were other times, in fact, that people tried to take his life from him. They tried to push him off a cliff. They picked up stones to stone him. And both of those times we read that he walked right through the middle of him, of them. You do not walk away from a stoning, Jesus did, because it was not yet his time. When it was, he laid down his life for us. Notice it wasn't for him. It was for us. Galatians, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because he loved us. He laid down his life for us. We, you see, are the beneficiaries of this agape, this self-sacrificing love that is for another's benefits, has another's best interests in mind. He had our best interests in mind. Do you get that? I don't get that. You see, it becomes all the more meaningful when we remember that we were undeserving recipients of his love. <clears throat> there was nothing lovable about us that made him love us. We were dead in trespasses and sin, Paul has already said in this book. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, undeserving, unlovable, Christ died for us. He gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's very intentional and intriguing language, and it takes us to sacrifice language of the Old Testament. Paul is saying these, those Old Testament sacrifices, when, when offered rightly with pure hearts, they, they, he reminds us that they, rose, they arose as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Sweet-smelling means that it was acceptable, it was well-pleasing to God. Now, I don't want you to miss something very important here. Christ <coughs> was offered... To God. He was a sacrifice for sin to meet the righteous and just demands of God. His was not a sacrifice. His was not a payment to Satan. All right? To, 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 to somehow buy sinners. Yes, Paul uses redemption language to speak of us being slaves to sin, and Christ, by his death and resurrection, purchased our redemption. He bought us out of the slave market of sin, but we must not press that language too far. <coughs> the sacrifice of Christ was an offering to God to meet his just requirements 
for atonement. Again, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to, to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is atonement language. He atoned for our sins, propitiating or satisfying or appeasing God's righteous wrath that was rightly poised against us. And Christ met the righteous demands of the Father, dying for us, that is in our place. And we see here the idea of substitution. He died for us in our place. Substitution. Isaiah 53. Surely our gifts he, our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, notice, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgression, substitution. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on Him. And by His scourging, we're healed. All of us like sheep had gone astray. Each of us had turned to His own way. But the Lord, that's God, that's Yahweh, caused the iniquity of us to fall on Him. He was oppressed, afflicted, didn't open His mouth like a lamb that has led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent, before it shears, so he did not open his mouth. You see, he gave himself up. And the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to death. It was not Satan who put Jesus on the cross. It was God. If he would render himself, Jesus voluntarily gave himself up for us as a guilt offering. All through, this, all through the passage, that passage, the, the gospel accounts, the New Testament epistles, we find that God put His own Son to death for us. Jesus gave Himself up for us. And His sacrifice becomes a fragrant, well-pleasing, acceptable aroma to God because it satisfies the righteous requirements of God, that and that alone. This is the ultimate demonstration of self-sacrificing love. And now Paul moves on to talk about the opposite of self-sacrificing love. He talks about selfish or self-serving love in verses 3 and 4. So there's a connection here, but it's by contrast. Look, look at what verses 3 and 4 with me. But, an adversative conjunction, but, walk in love... But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Again, it seems like Paul makes a right turn, but he's drawing a contrast. He doesn't use the word love. He, he's simply saying here, as beloved children, as people who are loved, walk in love. What kind? Self-sacrificing love. And don't let the sins of self-focused love, self-indulgent sensuality, that is the perversion of love, don't even let that be named among you. He starts in verse 3 with three selfish sins because of self-love 
that have no place in the life of the believer. First is immorality, sexual immorality, which always figures prominently in Paul's writing. Sexual immorality was a problem then like it is now. It was first on his list in the deeds of the flesh in, in Galatians 5. Believers are to abstain from it in 1 Thessalonians 4. They're to shun it in 1 Corinthians 6, sexual immorality. The word is porneia, from which we get our word pornography. It originally spoke of adultery or prostitution, but came to refer to any kind of illicit sexual relation outside of marriage. Any kind of sexual relationship outside of marriage. And by the way, while I'm on it, the Bible clearly defines marriage as between one man and one woman for life. I want to say this very gently but very clearly. It condemns homosexuality as illicit, as sinful. So, let me take the opportunity to say, on May 8th, when North Carolina votes to affirm an amendment to the state constitution, I want to encourage you to exercise your right to vote and vote for marriage as defined biblically between one man and, and one woman. It's not a political statement, that's a moral statement. Next on the list is impurity. Now, when coupled with porneia, it usually speaks of sexual sin, but Paul adds a word there. He adds the word any, any impurity. So it likely has to do with all kinds of impurity to include sexual sin, which seems to be the focus in this passage because of the words that he uses. Next is greed. Very interesting. The 10th commandment calls it covetousness, and it includes the idea of not coveting your neighbor's wife. And so, Given the list here, most think it has to do with coveting sexual sin. We call it lust to satiate personal sinful desires in perverted sinful self-love. Again, greed, lust was rampant in Paul's day, it's rampant in ours. And he says sexual vice, or, or, I, I want to suggest that sexual vice is so prevalent that means we see it so much everywhere we look that if we're not careful, before you know it, we will tolerate it and then embrace it. And Paul says, such sin should not even be named among you. That means this kind of sin should not be found here. It actually means we shouldn't even be thinking or talking about it. Verse 12, we're going to get to, I don't know when. Verse 12, we're going to get to, he says, we don't even talk about it. We shouldn't read it in books. It's not okay. We shouldn't watch it on TV. It's not okay. If it is found among believers, it should be exposed and expelled. That's why Paul told the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 5, stop tolerating, like it's a spiritual merit badge, stop tolerating sexual sin. Expel that immoral man from among you. 
In fact, was such a person who, who claims, by the way, to be a Christian and, and is involved in sexual sin, unrepentant sexual sin, claims to be a Christian, with that person, don't eat. Don't sit down to a meal like their sexual immorality is no big deal. It is a big deal. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Don't tolerate it. It shouldn't be named among you. It is improper among saints. Notice he doesn't say these saints. He says saints. So that the emphasis falls on the characteristic or quality of saints. And saints, we know, means holy ones. Sexual immorality is not proper among holy people. Self-sacrificing love seeks the benefit of others. Selfish love seeks the benefit of myself and is most often seen in these kinds of sins. This is what Paul is saying. From actions, Paul moves to speech. Verse 4, the wording is such that he seems to be talking about, and you'd be frank, improper sexual talk. There must be no filthiness. The word is obscenity. It includes profanity, but in the context, it's talking about filthy sexual dialogue. There should be no silly talk, which speaks of foolish talk, unseemly talk. There should be no coarse jesting, um, which includes sarcasm, but again, given context, refers to filthy, vulgar, coarse, dirty sexual talk. Dirty jokes. You know, the kind I wouldn't tell here, but maybe I would tell somewhere else. And Paul says, no, there must be no obscenity, no silly talk, unseemly talk, no dirty language. Instead of filthy language, he says, Christ followers are known for gratitude and um, thankfulness. If you think about that, people who are others-focused and God-focused are people of gratitude, not filthy talk. This brings us to the last point, which is a warning to self-loving sinful people. Verses 5 and 6. You decide, well, you know, I, I, but this is kind of who I am. Okay. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, think it's not that big a deal, it's a big deal. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul lowers the boom. He's trying to make us understand Christ followers walk differently. Our walk matches our holy calling. Our walk is a walk of unity and purity. Our walk is a walk of self-sacrificing love, not selfish, self-centered, sinful love. For this you know with certainty, meaning you know this, it's beyond dispute. You know, you understand this, that no immoral, impure, or covetous person will have an inheritance in the kingdom. Paul you, you lists the three sins of self-love from from verse 3, and says, if your life is characterized <coughs> by immorality, impurity, and covetous, here's what he's saying. Listen, right now. If your life is characterized by the, these things, you're not really a Christian. 
because Christ's followers do not act this way. You, he says, right now have no inheritance in the kingdom. Now, one author said it this way. I kind of like this. The apostle is not asserting that the believer who ever falls into these sins is automatically excluded from God's kingdom. Rather, what is envisaged, I don't know why he said seen here, is the person who has given himself or herself up without shame or repentance to this way of life. Now, immediately you may be sitting there going, whoa, wait a minute. How much immorality? Come on, pastor, tell me when I'm crossing the line. How much impurity? How much lust, covetousness? He doesn't say. The emphasis is on a lifestyle characterized by pagan, unsaved, Gentile, sinful choices and desires. And, and, And rather than worrying about how much you can get away with sin, ask the question, do I have a heart that wants to forsake sin? Do I want to flee from sin? Or do I pursue self-gratifying sins? If you do, this is what Paul says, if you do, you don't have an inheritance in the present or future kingdom. You're not a Christian. Notice how Paul equates coveting with idolatry because at the heart Coveting or greed is wanting something so badly that you make it the center of your desire and it becomes an idolatrous obsession. It takes us back to the beginning. Who do you want to be most like? The answer reveals your heart. If it is anyone besides God, then the person that you are admiring, coveting, might actually be an idol. Verse 6, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Doesn't matter if they write a book and tell you that love wins that everyone's going to make it to heaven. It's not true. Because of these sins, the wrath of God will come upon the sons and daughters of disobedience. Their lives are characterized by sin. They are not sons and daughters of God. They are sons and daughters of disobedience. These are harsh words, I, I, I know. But Paul is calling us to remember we've put off the old self. We've put on the new. If the new self looks like the old self, listen to me. If the new self looks like the old self, we've got a problem. And the warning is severe. Christians live and walk like Christians. And I want to say to you, if your walk does not look right, if it is not pure, if it is full of characterized by sexual immorality, by impurity, by covetousness, by foolish talk, by obscenities, by dirty jokes, then very gently I want to say to you, you don't know Jesus. But I also want to say to you some good news. You can. Simply by repenting of your sin, believing the gospel, and surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. Let's pray. Father, um, this is an intense passage. It calls us to remember who we are.
We're beloved children of God, and so we are supposed to imitate you. The, the, the bar is high, but you have given us your spirit by whom we can follow. Help us do that, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.